Happy holidays, everybody. I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today, we are talking about A Muppet Christmas Carol, the 1992 film directed by Brian Henson, screenplay by Jerry Joel, and based on the novella by Charles Dickens. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So I am very excited to talk about A Muppet Christmas Carol because this was my version of A Christmas Carol that I grew up with. Mm. It was very fascinating to revisit it as an adult, which we can talk about. And it was fun to do this video about A Christmas Carol and how the structure of it is so simple and classic and all the lessons that can be learned. So we want to talk about some of that structural stuff from A Christmas Carol and this film and how it kind of manipulates that structure. And there's a lot of uh, darkness in this mm. both film and mm -hmm. in the story. And so I think it's interesting how this movie juggles those things. So I want to touch on that and just the Muppetness of it all because we have not yet talked about a Muppet movie yet. Yay! So, all these things. <laughs> but I'd like to start with you, Brian. So you were the one that pitched the idea of doing A Christmas Carol and a video on Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. How did you arrive at that idea and what did you want to talk about with it? Uh, well, it started just almost one year ago where I was on a, uh, it's called a plane, uh, which is how we got around <laughs> back then. Um, the before times. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and I was watching uh, A Muppet Christmas Carol, appropriately enough. And I messaged you guys on Slack and I was I just said, I can't think of another movie where the act structure is so just visible because you literally have like this inciting incident ghost who says here's what's going to happen you're going to be visited by these three ghosts like act one act two act three and then there's a crisis where he literally sees his own death and i just thought this is really interesting to think about this from from a sort of act structure point of view and i couldn't think of another movie that did that unless it's like run lola run or moonlight or a movie where like every 30 minutes it just turns into a different thing like mm -hmm. you know uh, a movie with a sort of and i'm sure there are plenty of examples of movie where act one they're in this city and act two they're in this city whatever but i just couldn't think of anything so then i i grabbed the book and i realized that it was split into these five staves uh as they're called in the book which then even better split the three acts into five act structure where it's like stave one the ghost of jacob marley stave two ghost christmas past present christmas yes to, yet to come and then it's called um the end of it is the last stave which is you know where he wakes up and everything and then the more i thought about it the more i realized that every plot point not just the acts themselves but every plot point was represented by a character often who would show up and do their story function and then leave and never come back you know mm -hmm. like so the example being bell his um his ex-fiance who she shows up in the story to like show scrooge and the audience this very specific thing in act two and then she's gone forever basically <laughs> and you know and but then how it's bookended by his nephew fred and bob cratchit how mm -hmm. how he treats them in the beginning is then mirrored uh at the at the end how he treats them and i just thought this is really cool and i just liked how well it fit into a just nice and neat five act or three act depending on what you're going for structure and how every major plot point was represented by a character so i sort of pitched that to you guys and then we started talking about how to handle it and i started watching i watched like 10 different adaptations of a christmas carol <laughs> and and they're not all perfect representations of the book and because we said let's just do muppets and i said yeah but it doesn't quite do this thing and it doesn't quite do that thing so we kind of settled on doing this um you know multi multi-version version which i think is great because i think there's not People have their own version of A Christmas Carol, but I don't think there is that one definitive one where everyone says that does everything perfectly. But I think we got some of the 
some of the closest in our video. You guys should see it. Or if you have any questions about any version of A Christmas Carol ever, uh-huh. <laughs> Ryan has some spreadsheets that he yep. can show. Yeah, like, sure spreadsheets do. upon spreadsheets. I can tell so. you what percentage of the way into each movie a certain <laughs> plot point happens and how closely that fits the book. Truly spectacular. We have to release that to patrons. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel yeah, like other absolutely. people will appreciate that. <laughs> totally. Yeah, well, and, you know, I'm a structure nerd, and so that sounded really fascinating. And then, Brian, as you did all this in-depth research, it was cool to see that confirmed and and borne out in these spreadsheets and and looking at all these examples of the film. Um, I feel like we could probably make, like, a like instead of a save the cat template, we could do, like, a save the Scrooge template uh-huh. that we can make. <laughs> totally. Right. It's just, like... What? Who's your bell and your story, dear yeah. dear writer? <laughs> yeah, and and so it was fun to to revisit a Christmas Carol and think about it in all these ways, and that let us watch a Muppet Christmas Carol, which I had been fighting for because it it, it was my Christmas Carol, it's mm-hmm. the one that I loved a lot. It is the best one. I'm gonna go with it's the best. I th- <laughs> I think it I think it's the most watchable sure. version, like especially in the spirit of a holiday season, because like even if you have a high tolerance for like a more serious holiday film, it's like a holiday movie. So you know, on a recent like Q and A, we were asked like what our favorite holiday movies are and what are the qualities that we like from a holiday movie and a Muppet Christmas Carol with like the family and the togetherness and the singing and just the <laughs> joyfulness of it. I don't know. It really checks all of the like things you want to watch boxes, I think. So, Alex, you, you had never seen this version before. So I'm curious well, to get your... Oh, as as okay. I was watching it, okay. like those childhood sense memories started coming back. And so mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I have seen it. And it just wasn't my Christmas Carol. Mine was like the Scrooge McDuck. I think not quite feature film, shorter, like Disney mm-hmm. cartoon version. Where like Goofy is Jacob Marley and Mickey is Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim is like a little Mickey. And so that was the one that like I saw over and over and over again that's as a, a good kid. Version. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was it's really good version. And and so that's what I always think of when I think of childhood Christmas Carol. But as I was watching this Muppet version, I totally have seen it because there there are those weird things you notice as a child that like mm-hmm. stand mm-hmm. out to you or like bother you. And I was like, oh yeah, like the way Miss Piggy comes and kind of like like kisses Kermit on the neck as when he comes home <laughs> like like that was kind of weird when I was a kid I was like what's going on and like why are the two like little pigs like repeating her words after her and anyway there were like, these like funny like kid memories I had that were popping up as I was watching the movie so it confirmed that I have indeed right. seen him up at Christmas Carol but not since I was a kid maybe once or twice but it was fun to re- it was fun to revisit and have those feelings come up again because there's that weird thing where you you see a movie only as a kid and you don't really like you don't take it in the same way an adult brain takes it in. You Like you're not even following the story necessarily. You're like observing strange details that like are like confounding your child brain. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's always fun to watch a movie that that has only been seen through that lens and then re-experience it as an adult where I get all the jokes and know what the subtext is and what's going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, it, it almost freaks me out when when that happens because i realize there are like packs of neurons in my brain that have just been hanging out for 30 years right. yeah uh-huh. but like they get reactivated <laughs> yeah. upon watching these images again right it, it makes me want like someone must have done a, a psychological study of something of, of why that happens and like i don't know i don't want to go too we're going to get off topic if i think about this too hard <laughs> but just that weird thing of like why does your brain remember things that it doesn't remember like right. upon being triggered, yeah. suddenly I remember, oh, I remember being a 
kind of disturbed by the way Kermit moves when we see his full body and this <laughs> like wide shot. <laughs> right. When it cuts to him with Tiny Tim on his shoulder walking in the street, that shot is like both really charming and very uncanny. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's not riding a bicycle like the Muppet movie, so <laughs> at least it's like slightly removed from that. Yeah. But yeah, I totally have those things with movies that I watched a ton as a kid where I remember every inflection or I'll remember mm -hmm. like a character says something in a little bit of a weird way or something. And I'm just always surprised that my brain has, has kept that. Yeah. My dad calls that stuff brain sludge. Like, <laughs> like how songs, you know, you'll you'll never need like the the child the jingle of the like you know gum or whatever that mm -hmm. I, that's the example from Inside Out, Inside right? Out, Where it's right. like yeah, the, the stuff that keeps coming back up. You will literally never need it ever in your whole life, and yet your brain will not forget it for mm. sure. <laughs> right, uh, but yeah, Trisha, your uh, comment about this feeling more Christmassy than other adaptations, I think that. Um, that's spot on because a lot of adaptations, we are living in Scrooge world for a lot of it. We are sort mm -hmm. of, you know, whether or not, not that like we're, we're meant to feel like Scrooge feels necessarily, but we are following sort of Christmas is this thing happening in the background of this character story. And what's fun about Muppet Christmas Carol is you have this very lavish Christmassy. We see the whole town, the, you know, the opening shot as we come down onto the town mm -hmm. and we pass all the Muppets doing their street vending and everything. <laughs> and then on top of that, you have Gonzo and Rizzo as the narrator. So it's like, we're all here hanging out, enjoying Christmas, and we're going to tell you this story. So it's almost like the, the Muppets and Christmas time is the the forefront of the of the movie and then Scrooge's story is this thing that's also happening as opposed to most adaptations where it purposefully doesn't give you a lot of Christmas until the sort of story earns that, which is maybe a quote unquote better way to do it, but it's way less fun and just, you know, hot chocolate, warm blanket kind of feeling that Muppet <laughs> Christmas Carol gives you. Yeah. You know, um in I think the song is the most wonderful time of the year that mm -hmm. they talk about like there'll be scary ghost stories around the fire, you know, kind of thing is the lyric from that song. And and whenever you hear it, you go, what? Like, who's telling ghost stories at Christmas? And the answer is Charles Dickens, right? Yeah. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but I think that people do tend to associate this with being like kind of a spooky story rather right. than like the big, charming, heartwarming Christmas thing. And I, and I think we can talk about this later, but I think the songs are a huge part of the reason. Sure. The fact that you have all these songs that are full of like Christmassy instruments, like sleigh bells and, and things mm -hmm. like that, um, <laughs> that make it, that give it more of that Christmassy feel. And they're also very like singable, which this is called a Christmas carol. And Christmas songs are one of the things that I think basically everybody who celebrates Christmas has Christmas songs. And even if you don't celebrate Christmas, your holiday, your end of the year holiday has songs pretty much. So I think that incorporating the music piece here is also part of give, what gives it that sort of like holiday feeling. Right. And you have the songs written by Paul Williams, who wrote Rainbow Connection. And we, you know, can we just talk? We'll talk about him like a lot later, maybe. Hopefully. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love Paul Williams so much. So yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's not writing songs with Daft Punk, he's writing Muppet songs. I mean, he is the best. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like right now, I have some of the jingles from the movie in my head as we're talking about them, which just mm -hmm. tells you like they're they they did their job. Like I'm 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 humming in my head the song from the middle of the film with the Christmas present. Wherever where you yeah. find love, it feels like Christmas. Like yeah, Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's like and, and yeah. like the fact that the middle of the movie has a song like that, which is a very jaunty happy yeah. Christmas focused song is different from an adaptation 
where it's just a straight up, you know, uh, Scrooge going with a ghost to go see people talking crap about him. You know, like right. that's, yeah. th- <laughs> there's no interlude to give you that cheeriness before he kind of gets some hard truth. Right. Right. W- one thing that happens in the book that is almost never in any adaptations just because of cost is Christmas present takes Scrooge around the world and shows him different places. So it's like mm. some fishermen out in the middle of nowhere or miners or something, but they're singing Christmas carols together because it's Christmas and that's what they care about. Obviously, that's just hard to shoot. You have to have all these different right. sets and all that kind of stuff. But I think this movie achieves that with that song because you are going through the streets of London right. and just seeing everybody just happy and, and everything. And then you see Scrooge start to kind of dance along. And, you know, it's <laughs> interesting the ad- different adaptations detract Scrooge, who's kind of a passive protagonist who sort of doesn't really have, doesn't really make choices in the story. He's just sort of along for the ride uh, and to sort of see when each actor decides to start letting, letting that Christmas spirit kind of get into them a little bit. Mm-hmm. A note I wrote was Michael Caine dancing is everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Michael can I really did actually appreciate that in this adaptation of it, you know, watching it now with adult lens on, uh, seeing how he lets in joy like throughout. It's not like it's all saved for post revelation at the end. And I think that makes him a more interesting character and more relatable. And his transformation it is more realistic because he's not just hardened the whole time and then at the very end he just flips a switch. He he is willing to like let in some of the joy slowly as they progress through the different right. acts and that's you know in theory what the hero's journey is supposed to be is that the you are slowly being persuaded and you're getting you're making baby steps forward until you know stuff goes down and then you got to make some ultimate choices uh toward the end and, and i think a huge part of that is achieved by the first thing that happens is he is shown a happier time in his life. He's shown, you know, Fozzie Wig or Fuzzy Wig's ball. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, just like the first, he sees these kids running around, oh, there's my old friend and da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's a really great way to sort of show Scrooge as a non-Scrooge because he, because he suddenly gets transported to this younger character and then he sort of watches himself turn into himself. And it's, so it's sort of, it's a really nice way to, to sort of punch him in the gut right away with, Hey, you remember when you weren't this person? Yeah, right. It, it's like providing a spark of that joy. Yeah, it's like let's let's start this engine up by just using the car metaphor that I don't have in place to get your, <laughs> your... <laughs> key and ignition and the, yeah, some yeah. spark plug of the transmission <laughs> um, steering column. Yeah, so I think all these things we're talking about are are what was intellectually fascinating for me for me watching this again was all the choices made in doing this adaptation where it is very Christmassy and fun. And, you know, there's the Gonzo playing Charles Dickens, basically like a, like a subplot. And so there, there are these constraints that probably are half, you know, it's gotta be a kids movie and it's gotta be a Muppet movie. Where do we Mm -hmm. put all these lovable Muppet characters? And I think it all comes together in a really nice way because having this, it's, you know, it's not just Gonzo and Rizzo, the rat, uh, as narrators, they're like characters. They have like a subplot where they're mm-hmm. trying to keep up and not get left behind from one ghost memory to the other. And so it gives you something else to cut back to. And that also helps with this kind of third thing that they're juggling is making sure there's enough levity to offset the darkness and the ghost storyness. And I remember as a kid when uh, Jacob and Bob Marley show up <laughs> in their change as, as the ghosts being really afraid because it's 
really intense imagery like this yeah. you know the reanimated ghosts of these people and they kind of build it up where they're like yeah they're dead and rotting in their graves and right. they come from below and there's all these chains so they spend the time to make that scary and make that effective but as soon as the ghosts emerge they're laughing and they're muppets which of course always helps mm -hmm. and then they burst into song and so i feel like there's there's always this counterpoint to the darkness that they're putting forth that allows the darkness to be effective because it is supposed to be scary. You're supposed to understand the emotion of that. But then it also makes it okay and fun again. And I think throughout, they, they do a good job of balancing that. Mm -hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think one of the critical pieces of the story and of Scrooge just as a character is this entire range of emotion. So I think a trap that you could easily fall into with the Scrooge character is thinking of him as like sort of a one note grouch where not only does he not like anything, but you could you could easily write him or play him as not being in any way compelled or engaging in anything. I think that the best Scrooges are the ones that have this super wide range where they are experiencing a lot of emotions, mm -hmm. right? Emotions are not binary where we have grouchiness and anger versus like comedy. Like we don't, it's not just these like two things. There's all of these other, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those emotional wheels. Um, sometimes we use them to like, I sometimes use them when I'm working with younger kids, but it's like here you have all of these wheels where you know, you have different facets of what joy looks like, what what wonderment is, what fear is, what, you know, anger, concern, anxiety, like all of these things that kind of play together. And I think that Scrooge needs to have all of these emotions. So it's important for Scrooge to be scared. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. He can't only be annoyed when the when Bob, not Bob Marley, you got me doing it. <laughs> When in this case, you know, uh, the Marleys show up, Statler and Waldorf, who are two of my favorite Muppets anyway, um, but they, and, they're, and they're perfect here to play the Marleys. You have to have a real fear coming from Scrooge where he has to be compelled by what's going on. And Michael Caine's performance is there, but also it's it's embedded in Dickens's character. And mm. I think the best representations we see of Scrooge are the ones where we see him going on this complete range of things where he's genuinely happy to see you know, Fezziwig and his old um, mm -hmm. friends again. He's mm -hmm. genuinely really touched and hurt to be losing Belle again. Mm -hmm. Like he has to have all of these different things in order for us to buy that he's capable of a transformation. If we saw a Scrooge that was so emotionally dead that he's only like a one note miser, then we wouldn't buy it at all. And also it just wouldn't be an interesting story. Right. So I, I think that, you know, Scrooge's reactions to everything that goes on make it what it is they make it believable they make him relatable they make the story interesting and, and engaging to watch yeah and i think that's absolutely true of of all scrooges alistair sim and george c scott like some of the greatest ones of all time and then on top of that michael Caine is in a muppet movie and yeah. <laughs> you know but he plays it straight he doesn't play it like yeah. oh i'm in this kid's thing or i'm in this family thing like he fully commits to 
every single one of those emotions you just mentioned. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think after, you know, in the process of editing this video, I'm looking at all these adaptations a lot. I think he's my favorite out of these live action adaptations. Just just his embodiment of Scrooge, his face, his Mm -hmm. energy. I actually like the best as like the character of Scrooge personally. So kudos to Michael Caine for just kind of nailing it in my book. Well, I was reading about the scene that is, you know, this sort of infamous song that was cut from the Muppet movie, which is called When Love is Gone. Infamous. Everyone knows. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You said this was your Christmas carol. Obviously, you're not a true fan. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Well, actually, there were several songs that were cut. Um, They were filmed and were cut. But the sort of big ballad, like, and the one that is you know, sort of most notoriously absent from the the released version of this is called When Love Is Gone. And it's a duet between Scrooge and Belle. It's really touching and moving. Uh, the actress that they have playing Belle is an incredible singer. You know, she's a, like a Broadway, you know, performer. And Michael Caine had not done any real professional singing up until that point. I was reading an article where they, you know, we're talking about uh, Paul Williams and Brian Henson were talking about this lost song. They were saying, you know, oh, she was so amazing. We did like one take with her. She was fantastic. You, you never had to like work with her at all or coach her at all. And the pro- almost the problem with Michael Caine is that he was so emotionally invested in the scene. It was like mm. hard for him to sing, right? Where he'd be like weeping so much <laughs> that he like couldn't even sing or like his performance as Scrooge is so raw. I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's not afraid to display emotion in every scene. And it's like, it's a little bit bigger than you would go for, I think, if you weren't with Muppets. But other than that, I think you're absolutely right that he does play yeah. it straight. And that's, I think, the great, great strength of one of the great, great strengths of this version. Well, I've, I've had it really touching the scene, the midpoint scene when he's watching Tiny Tim. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Caine has, he's got tears in his eyes and he's mm-hmm. really like, he's like holding back. A flood of emotion, which For I don't sure. I don't know if I saw the same kind of that same kind of rawness in the other Scrooges at that midpoint. You know, they're more mm-hmm. just worried about Tiny Tim asking the ghost. It's like a curiosity. What's going to happen mm-hmm. to him? But then they don't have that like their heart is kind of being broken as they're watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That image of the empty chair with the, the crutch is like mm-hmm. burned into my brain. Like every time we've talked about it, like the image from a Muppet Christmas Carol is what's there. And it's so intense and it's so heartbreaking to kind of expand on what all you guys are talking about. I I feel like there is an earnestness in this movie Mm -hmm. that was refreshing to just travel back 30 years Mm -hmm. or whatever it is and see a movie where they don't have to kind of apologize for existing, for for being a Muppet movie. And I feel like some of the more recent ones, there is a little bit of that where like part of the joke is like, isn't it weird that we're making a Muppet movie? Or yeah, you know, I I feel like in general, in our culture now, you have to kind of apologize. Right. There's a cynicism. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or like a meta level, like right. That has to always be there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and and Gonzo and Riz like there there's ironic like you know adult humor in there but it's never like apologizing for existing and i i appreciate that and i feel like michael kane and his his all-in performance on that kind of helps amplify that even more and and it i feel like that's what the muppets are like that's what's so fun mm-hmm. about them it's just visiting muppet world yeah mm-hmm. i remember reading a review for blinded by the light the bruce springsteen movie that came out um mm-hmm. last year that was directed by the woman who directed uh bend it like beckham mm-hmm. and the review just said like 
it's unabashedly positive and you don't get that anymore. And I just thought, oh, what? And I saw the movie and, and they're right. And I just thought like, that's such a neat thing. And I think that's kind of what you get from something like a Muppet movie, which is like, we're, we're not going to try to be cool is not the right word, but we're not going to try to be edgy or whatever. We're just going to have some fun, but in a way that is smart and three-dimensional and not just like, you know, people goofing around for two hours or something. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that has always categorized like the best Muppet content or sort of like the most classic Muppet content is that the Muppets themselves are not in on the joke. Like they mm. don't know they're Muppets and the, the performances and the writing of those characters, they are just playing it straight basically right. like they are, you know, Kermit the Frog has like real emotions all the time. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, he he has his own characteristics where he's basically the most worried like <laughs> hero we could ever have. He's just yeah. constantly so worried about everything um, and but can't get out of any situation he's in. He's just utterly trapped in whatever problem that he has. But the way that that character has always been written and played is perfectly straight. Essentially, he is a mm -hmm. frog. He's going on whatever adventure and they, they experience real emotions and like emotional turns um in as much as you know the writing or the plot demands and i think that's why the the songs the best muppet songs are also some of the ones that are funniest are the ones that are leaning really hard into whatever genre they are and being sung and performed essentially basically like dead on straight and serious and earnest so you know something like rainbow connection is just this lovely ballad. There's not a joke in it, though. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no, you know, sort of winking at the camera, like, isn't this frog sitting on a log playing a banjo funny? It's just, here's a lovely song. And the Muppet Christmas Carol songs, you know, there are lots of other great Muppet songs that Paul Williams did not write. <laughs> <laughs> he did write the best ones. But the Muppet Christmas Carol songs are another great example of that. When you, when you see Tiny Tim, you know, singing that song, um, Bless Us All. Mm. 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 <laughs> mm. Can't you can't just like Tiny Tim having a song all uh, I know. <laughs> emotionally wrecking, and, and then even before that, you get the like, "Tis a season to be jolly and joyous." Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it's just it's adorable. <laughs> well done. I mean, yeah, t Tiny Tim is just like a cheat code of a character, anyway. Right, <laughs> right. Like a tiny little person, whether it's a frog or a human, with a crutch, like right. who, who has a little tiny cough, named Tiny Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's again, there's this there is a sincerity. And yeah. mm -hmm. that's to me, that's what the Muppets are. And you're absolutely right that like a lot of modern Muppet content and part of it is maybe the world that Muppets exist in now. And and I don't know if there's like a way to solve it, but I, I agree that that's missing and it makes it feel a little bit soulless mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're totally right that they that they don't sort of wake at the camera and stuff there are occasionally those moments but they're they're not during a part where it's distracting you know you have in this movie mm -hmm. in particular you have them reminding sam eagle what his line is oh yeah <laughs> so it's like suddenly <laughs> these people who are telling you the story are now in the story in the past talking to i guess an actor who is you know so it, it, but it also gives it that sense of we're just all gathered around to to tell you a story you know the way that like i feel like Our Town or Romeo and Juliet is sort of the actors come out on stage and say, we're going to give you a tale now. It kind of has that sense to it. I have three favorite Muppet movie moments, 
and I will list them for you now. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> because one is from this movie and one is a sort of wink to the camera. And one one is just from Muppets from Space where Pepe tells Rizzo he's going to smack him like a bad, bad donkey. Um, but Wow. <laughs> the other, I will smack you like a bad, bad donkey, okay? But uh, in Muppets Take Manhattan, uh-huh. Kermit meets, uh, I think her name is Jenny. He, he, says, he says, hi, I'm Kermit. And she says, hi, Kermit, I'm Jenny. And there's a little bit of a beat and he goes, I'm a frog. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just that little glimpse of like we know we're this is a frog in in a real movie <laughs> like we we get it you know and then the moment in, in this movie is just the the jelly bean kiss moment <laughs> where he's like oh you want a jelly bean and gonzo just looks at him like uh this idiot to rizzo and then rizzo just gives him a little kiss on the nose oh yeah it's so cute <laughs> i love that moment it's just so unexpected and so sweet yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's really lovely. And, and I, I think, too, like with this movie and even the original Muppet movie, but also especially Muppet Treasure Island, what you have is the Muppets are actors who are playing characters. Right. So the Muppet actors, not the performers doing them, those people don't exist, but the, the <laughs> Muppet actors are playing the characters. So, right. So Gonzo is playing Charles Dickens and Kermit the Frog is playing Bob Cratchit. And so I think that that helps those moments also like land and make sense where, you know, Gonzo can feed Sam the Eagle his line because we understand Sam the Eagle is playing a character. It's really Sam the Eagle. We've seen him in other things. He's the actor, right? Mm. Um, and, and Gonzo is the actor in that sense. And actually, even in the Muppet movie, right? Because the Muppet movie, the original from 1979, has that construction where it's like, we're watching a movie that we made. It's about ourselves and we're kind of playing ourselves, but right. it's a movie, right? So I think that when Muppets are doing that really well also... Um, we can allow for those little slips of moments here and there. But again, what I said about the Muppets not being in on it is still kind of the the base rock of the reality. And the performers who do the, you know, the performers who actually do the characters, you know, Dave Goals and Steve Whitmire and Jerry Nelson and Frank Oz, like they subsume themselves so much into the characters. There's a reason why the Muppets have a star on the Walk of Fame. Not, you know, mm-hmm. not any of these like actors or the characters themselves are, are right. who we now like see and rely on and know. Real quick, there is, uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's a uh, camera test they did for the Muppet movie. And it's just Jim Henson and Frank Oz as Kermit and Fozzie driving in a car. And they're just improvising the entire time. And it mm-hmm. is some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen. <laughs> but just like to see them fully improvising as the Muppets. Oh, I also think the Muppets from Space DVD has them doing a um, mystery science theater thing where it's like you see the back of their heads and they imp- <laughs> they just like improvise nice. the commentary for the entire movie. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just, but like like you said, they are these characters. They aren't just we have to read lines and do these very specific movements. It's like they are living in these bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but So first of all, I'd completely forgotten about Muppet Treasure Island. And now mm-hmm. it's all coming back. Oh, to yeah. Me. And <laughs> that movie rules. <laughs> like, did Pirates of the Caribbean just rip it off? Because like, clearly this is the best Pirates movie of all time. Now that I'm like, <laughs> it also has a Hans Zimmer score. I just want you to know. Wow. Like- <laughs> <laughs> This was clearly my first Michael Caine movie and Muppet Treasure Island is probably my first Tim Curry movie also. Mm. (laughs) What I was struck by in the filmmaking also is the comedy and the performances of the Muppets is completely on par with 
any kind of live action comedy routine that you, mm-hmm. you would do, like the performances, the looks, the beats, the, the comedic timing, the way even like, you know, when a Muppet falls, it doesn't just like they don't just knock the puppet backwards, like they flip it up. So it's feet fly in the <laughs> air. So you get the like the full effect of. Yeah. And it's, it's all these details that people, I think, appreciate subconsciously. But watching it as an adult, understanding what goes into filmmaking and filmmaking with puppets and all this stuff mm-hmm. i like just really appreciated the commitment to 100 percent executing these these moments and at, like yeah there there was no lazy moment at any point in this movie in the filmmaking mm-hmm. i was struck by that as well and, and there were moments that just showed me that there was a lot of love in the film like moments mm-hmm. where like the the clomp clomp of like a horse would mm-hmm. be like part of like the little like accent on a song and like on screen you see the little puppet horse like do a little dance like (laughs) like off to the side you know like it's those moments those things you don't have to do but they're there because there's a lot of just love and passion for making these movies Mm -hmm. look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So circling back around to the kind of the scary ghost story elements of of all the adaptations, Mm -hmm. looking at all of them side by side in the process of making this video really confirmed for me that I haven't read the original source material, but a lot of the like the horror and the and we're talking about Scrooge being legitimately scared that is reflected in all the adaptations, which tells me it's in the source material. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the sound of Jacob Marley's chains when he arrives yeah. and and how horrifying that is. And the creepiness, it seems like across the board of the ghost of Christmas past in, in one mm-hmm. way. There's like, there's like a certain type of creepy that the Ghost of Christmas Past has. Definitely. And then, I hate and then, it. I hate it. And yeah, <laughs> always. It's always the worst one. It's always really weird. And then Christmas Future is horrifying. Like mm-hmm. as a kid, like no matter what version, Disney, Muppet, it's it's a Dementor. It's a ring race. It basically. is a Dementor. Yeah. Yeah. Gonzo and Rizzo nope out. They yeah. straight up yeah. leave the movie. Gonzo and Rizzo, they leave the movie for that act it's, yeah. <laughs> because it's too scary for them. And yeah. there's that quote that we, that we mentioned before. I think it was it was the Steven Spielberg who said that kids like to be scared. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that is true. Part of what is an indelible like imprint on my mind from you know my Disney cartoon version of this was. Like it was the character was played by Goofy, but it was still scary when Jacob Marley kind of like comes out of like the door knocker on the door. Like his I remember that upset. so much mm-hmm. from that version. Yeah, it's scary. And and the, the loud chains. And then, of course, yeah, all of them have the Dementor at the end, you know, so and I and that's some part of, you know, falling in love with cinema and falling in love with storytelling. Like that is one of the emotions on the spectrum of emotions as a kid that does pull you into a movie. And so I, I, I do love that there's these adaptations of this essentially ghost story, Christmas ghost story that don't dispense with the scary aspects of the text. You know, they, they they honor that Christmas future is a ring wraith, you know, <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> they don't, they don't make it into like a friendly version of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like maybe the creepiest Christmas past I've seen, who's described in the book as being like a child and like an old man. So it's sort of how do you how do you actually do the adaptation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't do a CG candle with an Irish Jim Carrey's face on it because that doesn't work at all. Um, (laughs) Minister Zemeckis. But (laughs) but then, yeah, it's like one of the creepiest Christmas yet to come that they're always creepy, but like it's a really good where he's sort of too tall for, for a human, you know, and then. Definitely the creepiest old Joe, the guy who they're selling like the curtains to at the end. <laughs> He's, He's just like the big spider, spider yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, it's so good. It's funny though. Speaking of the source material, I wanted to, I would like to read to you guys from the book. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> the first two paragraphs, because it's so interesting the way we talk about the sort of the darkness, but then also how there is sort of like levity and comedy and stuff like that. So just, just get the sense of the tone, the slight tone shift between the first paragraph and second paragraph of the book. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of its burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change. For anything he chose to put his hand to, old Marley was dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. He's one paragraph wow. in and he's like doing like a Seinfeld. He's like, what's the deal with this phrase? <laughs> it's so weird. And he does that sometimes where he starts like talking to the reader as like, hi, I'm Charles Dickens. I'm the one telling the story. I want to like take a little time out and talk to you for a second. It's just really bizarre the way he does it. Yeah. I feel like that just underscores even more why the, the, the Muppet adaptation uh-huh. and getting Gonzo as Charles Dickens right. <laughs> like, like captures some of that. That's really the most faithful. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Dickens has the tendency to do that in all of his work. And I did not have patience for it when I was forced to read Oliver Twist, A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations. Oof. in high school and i was like ah this guy he cannot stop it right Um, but i agree i think that the the construction here of having a narrator to play charles dickens really helps the story keep moving narratively and and as you were pointing out alex it does sort of create this subplot and and throwing rizzo in there Uh you know to kind of just be this funny counterpoint um is is also really smart but i really love you know, Muppet Christmas Carol was a little bit criticized for this when it came out. They kept as much of the original language from the book as they possibly could. They mm-hmm. didn't, a lot of it, they didn't try to adapt or change. They used the old timey language. And it just reminded me so much of how, like, the best Shakespeare adaptations we have are the ones that do Shakespeare. Right. And they try to keep as much of the Shakespeare as they can. And it's a mark of trust in the audience that you don't have to dumb down old timey language to keep their attention if it's being performed and told well. And I think that that's like, you know, having taught English for many years, you know, students hate reading Shakespeare and I do not blame them. It is really hard to sit down and read Shakespeare, but it is not that hard to go to Shakespeare in the park at your, you know, well, I mean, it, it was this year, uh, <laughs> but like in whatever town you have, right, go out and, and go watch a Midsummer Night's Dream and, and sit on a blanket and watch it performed. And it is accessible. It can be accessible to you. 
if you put yourself in a space of learning and a willingness to engage with it. And I really respect that about the Muppet Christmas Carol. I love that they kept a ton of that language and mm-hmm. just let Gonzo deliver it and let mm-hmm. us trust that the performance and, and the, the other like modes of communication that go along with spoken or written language also help to carry across what is happening. 100%. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it was something I was tracking while watching the different adaptations was there are these lines that you know so well uh, from the source material and you don't necessarily realize like even people have never seen it, mm-hmm. don't realize these lines are emblazoned in your heads. You know, what's um, like a, a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December in life. I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Come in and know me better, man. God bless us, everyone. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the <laughs> truth. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, there's the there's the deleted scene where Michael Caine says to Bob Cratchit after the end of the story, you know, Bob Cratchit's working so hard and he just won't take a day off. And he says, every year I go to Florence and I order a fair day breaker and I look for you <laughs> and you're never there. I just want you and Miss Peggy to be there. Um, no, but seriously, like, uh, but these lines, that's, that's sort of what makes them so iconic and why every adaptation will keep either absolute verbatim or 90% verbatim will there maybe change one, you know, spirit to ghost or something small like that. But it's just like, it's cool to see how uh, how true a lot of those adaptations are to those very specific moments. I'm just picturing now Christopher <laughs> Nolan's A Christmas Carol. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. No! <laughs> Out of sequence. I yeah. would watch it. I would watch it. It'd be intense. And It'd really be so fascinating. dark. <laughs> but it's still Michael Caine. You still got to have Michael Caine. Yeah, it's, it's Michael Caine. Yeah. Tom Hardy could, could be the uh, ghost of Christmas yet to come because he doesn't speak anyway. You can't he understand what say. he says. <laughs> so I, I think he'd want to be the ghost of Christmas past and he'd be like really, really weird and be like unintelligible. Yeah. Like, can totally. be all three. Yeah. Just three different Tom Oh, Hardys yeah, it'd be all three. And, yeah. yeah. It's already like a time travel thing. So like right. you've got yeah. some stuff built in here. Listen, Chris, we've got a pitch for you. Yeah. <laughs> we've got your We're next going film. to visit your past. <laughs> <laughs> Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket the 25th of December. <laughs> when Ebenezer Scrooge is in his grave, you have my permission to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a bunch of like time travel questions about what model of time travel is this? But we, we, we need to go into that. He can't interfere. So it's kind of like a, a observation only. Yeah. Right, but he's seeing versions of the future that don't happen because he changed. So it's like he can't be seeing the future in the same timeline that he's in because he changes. And so the future is unchanged. So is it like parallel universe time travel? I guess I guess when he like split off, you know, on this journey at the night, like it's a different timeline. That's Isn't that the, convenient? That's the original writers. timeline. Of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> I always assumed that none of it was real. And he was right. all just like in his bed the whole time and like dreaming essentially about right. all of it it's all an undi- undigested bit of cheese yeah yes exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah i i assume it's from the book brian though but i one thing i love about the ghost of christmas yet to come is that he doesn't speak oh, and yeah. it's a really really strong choice like mm-hmm. you couldn't have written a monologue that is as menacing as just that figure that tower of silence that scrooge encounters you know here for the third ghost that's why i think Every single adaptation of it, it's like you don't it it is a scary cloaked figure. Mm-hmm. It doesn't speak. And it leaves Scrooge like basically lost to sort of work through what's happening on his own. It creates this lovely mystery 
that keeps the third act really engaging or the, I guess, you know, in the five act structure, it's the fourth one, right? Mm-hmm. That keeps that fourth act super engaging and scary and helps us sort of like go through, it helps Scrooge talk us through his change. And also, yeah, it, it's just a great device where that silence is it. Silence is a strong position. Yeah. And that's like something right. that I, Something that like I love when I see it well utilized in movies. Well, and the pointing, like I think there's something so ominous about this figure just pointing at something because you Mm -hmm. feel like it's pointing at something that's going to doom you, you know, like, like, look here. It's not going to be good because I'm a ring wraith. Right. (laughs) And the silence thing is funny. I, I have a friend who sometimes when he hasn't sort of quite formulated his opinion, he just won't say anything. Instead of just giving you an mm-hmm or mm. whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I just find sometimes I'm saying like, oh, yeah, I thought that movie was was really great. You know, I loved it. And he, he like doesn't respond. And then I just start going, I mean, you know, I had problems. And suddenly I start like he hasn't <laughs> right. even said anything yet. And so and I think that's what happens to Scrooge here in that part is like the, he, he the ghost won't say, well, maybe this is a future or, you know, who knows or whatever. He just doesn't say anything. And it forces Scrooge to kind of dig himself into that monologue of I swear I'll change, you know, why would you show me this if it if it is definitely going to happen and all that stuff and I think it's really cool just to have him be just scary and quiet. Yeah, exactly. I think it it's doing exactly what a story structure is supposed to be doing at that point and doing it harder because it is putting all the responsibility on Scrooge mm-hmm. to figure it out and put these pieces together like no one's going to tell you because if someone tells you something it's easy to be like well you're wrong i don't believe you but when he's having to put these pieces together you know the aha moments are happening in his head they're not coming from external sources and that pointing like you say alex the ominous feeling almost comes from Someone confidently say, like, you ask them a question, a really important question, and they just point with confidence. And there's something scary about, like, the answer will be obvious to me as long as I go that way, which means it's not going to be a subtle answer. And there's just, like, there's, like, emotional power, I feel like, to Mm. that, where, like, there's something behind that door. It's going to tell you everything you need to know. And that's maybe not what you want. You want someone to be like, oh, no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. But there's just so much, so much power in that, in this the final transformational act here that is just really intense. And I think more stories need, I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I really right. like it. Well, I mean, cause there's like, we've been talking about and what we say in the video, everything's on the surface in some ways, as far as revealing to us what good story structure does. And right. There's such an amazing like moment of like death and rebirth, basically, which mm-hmm. is what you kind of always want at the crisis and climax of your film. Like I remember emotionally as a kid actually the moment when he's like falling down in his grave and then like wakes up in bed it's like a really powerful moment because it you've been taken down to like the depths of despair Mm -hmm. and the worst possible scenario and then to be given a second chance at life you feel what scrooge feels which is like just gratitude for getting to try it again yeah I, i really appreciate how this movie is such a great reminder of what we all want stories to do to us you know it, it, it's just right there you can't deny what it's doing and it's it's what the archetypal story structure should be doing yeah everything is really um condensed right into like mm. symbols and the like we we're talking about the function of the acts are condensed into characters and they're heightened as well so you know scrooge is this like paragon of greed and it's like it really is the only character trait you need to know about him 
in order to go on this story. There's not a lot of complexity. I mean, we talked about the like range of emotions that make him human. Greed is human though, right? And so we zero in on this incredibly human flaw, basically create an embodiment of that and then force him on a journey to see how his greed has like negatively impacted his life, negatively impacted the lives of people around him and ultimately leads to this like incredibly dissatisfying, not even just dissatisfying, but distressing, horrible future where, you know, he ha- he leaves behind no legacy. It takes him to the end of his life. There's absolutely no comfort in that that prospect of like death or future or anything. It's just very, very cool that Charles Dickens used, he, you know, he picked greed because of like social problems that were happening in his time. But it's also like a timeless human flaw and then introduced characters that had exactly one job to do each to take someone from greed to generosity. And it just, you know, it's a short novel, too. Like, that's Mm -hmm. another reason why this gets adapted all the time. You don't have to lose a lot to put it into an hour and a half, two hours. No, you don't. Finally, Charles Dickens, the brevity. It wasn't so hard all along, was it? Uh, That man really did get paid by the word. Um, Anyway. But yeah, it's everything is so nicely compacted into this and and nicely boiled down. And I think that the the fourth act here with the ghost of Christmas yet to come is the an absolutely fantastic example of that. It's so simple and just sharp. Yeah. Razor sharp. You also get this nice thing from the crisis that hadn't occurred to me before, which is that the crisis is a direct result of the protagonist's flaw. Whereas a lot of time, and, and I think that I'm, I'm sure I could probably, if I thought about it hard enough, I maybe could name a hundred movies that do that. But so often the crisis is this sort of other thing. You're, you mm-hmm. know, the mentor dies, Obi-Wan, the Gandalf, you know, and, and maybe sure it's a, it's a result of the inciting incident, but not in a way where the protagonist is going, I am the sole reason why this thing happened. And that's what you really get with that moment with the grave and even the moment with, with Tiny Tim, where Bob Cratchit goes to, you know, to, to go see where Tim's going to be from now on and Ugh, you can see God, the grass and you God. know everything <laughs> and, and it's all it's all put on scrooge's shoulders as this is this is you that this is the, the, all of this is happening because of you to feel like changing or not you know yeah there's no b plot to muddy it up right sure. there's only there's, right. there's one plot there's an a plot it's scrooge's journey that's it right and yeah Yay, Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, speaking of Christmas time, in that Q&A question we had about like what are the qualities of a holiday movie, you know, the reason why this feels akin to It's a Wonderful Life to me and why they both mm-hmm. stand out as such as classic Christmas stories is they ultimately are about how we generally as a society, especially western society are so work and money focused. Yeah. And ultimately at the end of life that's not what matters. What matters is what impact you had on people around you, the family, the people in your life. That's what matters. And both movies are kind of about these men, these main characters, looking back and looking forward and seeing the impact they have on people around them and realizing that all their concerns about money basically are irrelevant at the end of the day. You know, what actually matters are these people around them. And so I think that's ultimately why this and that both of the movies we watch at Christmas is because I think as a holiday, it's also served this function as both serving capitalism and buying lots of presents <laughs> and Black Friday sales and such. But I think in its spirit and and the way that I 
the reason I loved Christmas as a kid was there's also this feeling of this, everybody's taking a break. Families are coming together. People who live out of state maybe are coming to visit you. Not this year necessarily. Mm-hmm. There's a moment of like, the thing that matters in life isn't just work. It isn't just career. It isn't just the stuff that we're told is the most important thing the rest of the year. Maybe at the end of the day, it's all this instead. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of your life, this is what matters. Bah, humbug. <laughs> we're not releasing this anymore. We're doing a video on Wall Street. That's coming out Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Scrooge and, and George Bailey, you know, from It's a Wonderful Life, mm-hmm. are two sides of that coin about the, right. the, cons- the over-concern with productivity, work, money. And so you have, you know, somebody like George Bailey who... His life is rich in relationships. He's like really embedded in his town and his community. He has a loving family. He has all of this stuff. And yet, because he doesn't have any money, he's unable to be thankful in a lot of ways or unable to really see how rich his life is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the villain from It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Potter, is the Scrooge kind of character. Right. and And he's, you know. But his life is so, in that movie, he is the villain. And so his life seems so unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. Scrooge is the flip side of that, where he has all of the money. He has absolutely, mm. and, and in a time where poverty, you know, was was rampant um, in Charles Dickens' time in London. And Scrooge is sitting comfortable and has everything he could possibly need. And yet that doesn't actually equate to a rich life. It doesn't actually give him like that wealth and comfort. He's a deeply unhappy person, even though he has everything. And so I agree with you that like these particular kinds of stories that specifically address kind of like the, yeah, just the the sort of social structures and, and values that we have around money um, and material wealth. Mm-hmm. I think those have a real impact. Like not not that, you know, other stories that are just like sort of more generally about like family or or faith. Like, not that those aren't powerful, but I think that Christmas is a time where we have both sides of those coins. All of that is such a big part of the season that we're reminded, you know, we're doing our accounting at the end of the year. (laughs) We're like trying to give gifts to people that we maybe can or can't afford. Like you see that with Bob Cratchit, right, where he like wants to give his family a better Christmas. He can't because he doesn't he's being exploited by his boss. I think that those stories have this really unique sort of thing that they speak to in us at this time of year. Mm-hmm. Question. Totally agree. But I was distracted. Can we get Michael to watch It's a Wonderful Life by getting him to watch It's a Very Merry Muppet Christmas movie? Oh, <laughs> interesting. Maybe. <laughs> what is that? Is that one of the newer Muppet movies? It's it's a the Muppet adaptation of, yeah, 2002. Oh. Mm-hmm. I, I missed that one. Um, <laughs> you missed all things involved in It's a Wonderful Life, apparently. <laughs> Guys, you can tweet at Michael and give him a really hard time. Last time we asked him to watch It's a Wonderful Life, he didn't finish it. And I... he de- he declared it to be overrated. We all know that's an incorrect opinion. So you can <laughs> you can get, get at him about that. <laughs> Did I use those words? I don't know that I remember it. You know what? There was him trying to she was naked in a bush and then they were dancing and people <laughs> fell from the basketball court into the pool and i was like i i don't know what's going on i feel like michael's adult brain is having feelings about it's wonderful life that like kids brain have about movies like we talked about earlier in this podcast mm. like like his brain is so disturbed by these like anachronistic things happening in the first half of it's wonderful life he just can't get past it 
I mean, at some point, I assume <laughs> it gets good. So maybe I'll watch another 20 minutes this year. There you go. Wow. Eventually, I'll... 20 minutes it's your per new year. Christmas tradition. You're, you're yeah. going to link later this? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Recently, we had filmmakers Anish Chaganti and Sev Ohanian on Beyond the Screenplay to talk about their new film, Run. We had a great conversation about their experience creating the film and how the process differed from their breakout hit, Searching. We're looking to have more guests like Seven and Anish come on the show in 2021. So reach out to the Beyond the Screenplay team on Twitter and let us know which filmmakers you think we should have on the show. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Screenplay. One last quick thing I want to say is uh, just having watched all these different adaptations is to see what people decide to add into the story in addition to like what they take out. It's just funny. We're like so obsessed with origin stories that they end up making the past. They add all these scenes into like uh, if his sister died giving birth to Fred on Christmas and that's why Scrooge hates Fred and like Scrooge made Marley a promise that he would keep the business alive and that's why he's so focused on it and all this stuff that and there's like scenes of Scrooge and Marley in the past and, and some of them are fine like and then you'll see different adaptations afterwards will just use that there'll be like an adaptation of that adaptation that's like I like that I'm going to keep doing that and a lot of that stuff's not in the book which is just really interesting and a lot of them use Bell as the midpoint because that is that first moment where you see Scrooge kind of go aha I realize what I I did but then it's sort of then you have to jam pack you know present and future into like the last mm -hmm. 30 minutes of your movie which is just kind of weird it, i'm not saying they're bad it's just an interesting thing to see like what people decide to add into it but one of my favorite things that's added in any adaptation is in a muppet christmas carol and it's the moment where beaker gives scrooge his scarf at the end Mm. Yeah, I was thinking cute. about that original to this and just he's and again it's Michael Caine's performance he's just so touched by it and it's just such a warm little moment and yeah I just love it it's like no one's ever given him a gift before yeah exactly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and it's that wonderful red scarf you know it's the Christmas mm -hmm. red kind of look it's suddenly there's some color in his life yeah yeah, yeah. it's lovely <laughs> awesome why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from a Muppet Christmas Carol Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. I'm going to cheat and do one from the book and one from the movie, uh, but very quick ones. I, I just, I like any time a story lets you know where you are. Uh, so like, I think I mentioned this somewhere before where all these movies have seven of something, Scott Pilgrim and seven, Ready Player Two now, Harry Potter, all these very similar stories. It's just like a seven of a thing has to happen. So any at any given point, you mm -hmm. know where you are. Um, and there are a lot of movies where you sort of know or stories where you know sort of you can at any given point you can say, oh, I'm three fifths of the way through because this is how far we are. So I do like that not only is the not only does the book and the story make the structure visible, it also just tells you from the beginning here's what's going to happen. So at any given point, you know kind of where you are. I just think that's cool. And with the movie specifically, this and Shaun of the Dead, actually, I come to as movies that are joke, irreverent kind of parody things, but that are also one of the best versions of that thing because they don't just do the, the one-dimensional jokey thing. They're like, no, we are actually going to play the drama of it. We are going to do these very real characters and actually do these very real situations. We're going to have a lot of fun and be silly at the same time, but we are actually going to, we're going to treat it in a way that makes you forget that you are watching something that's either a comedy or targeted at families or anything like that because they, they are, and same with Muppet Movie, Muppet Treasure Island, just the fact that they do, like you said, Trisha, it's not a wink to the camera. It's, we are going to really be serious with this, even though we're going to have fun while we're doing it. I just, I really like that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Alex, what about you? We kind of mentioned mine earlier. I think the Dickens dialogue and so much of the text being kept as is for with essentially as 
supposedly a kids movie, I think it was really like great choice and really bold choice. And like we said, trusting the audience. And it just reminds me of, you know, thinking back once again to that child brain watching a movie, even if they didn't do that, like kid brain doesn't really follow dialogue that much. It doesn't really follow like the intricacies of the text. It's it's we're taking in stories on a more visual like feeling level. And so I, I get bothered now when I do see films, even like PG-13 films that are like, we need to reach everybody in the entire world. It's going to be four quadrant. Like mm-hmm. it's got to be so broad. Let's let's make everything like the characters are going to say everything like extremely on the nose, extremely like duh. it's not <laughs> going to have any nuance because that would be too complicated for people to like understand. It might not, it might not translate perfectly. It might not this or that. But it's like if your storytelling is happening in the visuals, in the structural beats that are happening in the characters and their emotions like it's okay if we don't understand what that line meant like i didn't understand what half these lines meant when i was a mm. kid and i got what the story was and so i think yeah i i appreciate this kind of trust in an audience and i think people trying to appeal to a mass audience like it's okay if your dialogue or your text maybe isn't understood perfectly by everybody if the story at large is being told well and yeah. it's yeah. a good lesson i think that last part is important Christopher Nolan. <laughs> the rest of the movie has to be right. doing all that well, work. And also, like, if a movie isn't letting me hear what people are saying and it's, and it's not clear that that's intentional or if I feel like I should be hearing what they're saying, that's just a stressful experience. Right. That's not mm-hmm. a pleasant experience because I feel like I'm missing things I'm supposed to be hearing and I'm failing as a viewer because I can't hear it. Uh, right. So don't do that. <laughs> right. uh, awesome. Trisha. Yeah, um, mine, like, just a sort of very simple, uh, a little bit expounding on what we've been talking about and what what Brian, what drew Brian to this material for the video. But, like, you can add a character. Like, mm. if you have to have a thing that happens and there's not an immediate character already in your story to do that function, you can just add one. Like, that's an okay thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is a very extreme example of it. And And, like I said, the characters are so condensed and distilled into like their function that they're almost like not three-dimensional characters in any way and you know tiny tim is like such a like a little saint yeah i mean yeah he is like really he's just this like really happy kid who you know like uses a crutch and he just wants everyone like he's like i was at the church praying and you're like stop it you weren't (laughs) anyway it like i said it's it's so uh obvious that it's like it's emotionally manipulating scrooge it's emotionally manipulating us but it is doing what it needs to do like i don't know you we have you know in old westerns or or even like any sort of old movie you'd have what we used to call a kick the dog moment where it's mm. like the bad guy walks right in and he like kicks a, a helpless dog and yeah. you're just like wow that guy's bad <laughs> and like that kind of thing if you need that moment you can introduce a character. You can have the charity collectors walk in and be like, hi, do you want to give money to us? No. Oh, because you hate poor people. OK. Uh, and then they can walk right out again. They don't have to, you know, be a long term recurring character. That's what supporting characters are for. And they help the world feel lived in, but they also perform a function. And you don't necessarily have to have a character that's on screen for, you know, two hours if they're doing a job, let them get in, do their job and let them, you know, whatever that is. If that's exposition, great. If it's, you know, demonstrating a trait of the central character, 
then also great. I think this movie's clever, as you pointed out, Bri, to use in the first act and in the last act, right? In the mm-hmm. to bring back the same three people. You bring back Fred, mm-hmm. you bring bring back Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim, and then you bring back those charity collectors. Mm-hmm. And it it really works where it's like, we saw how he treated them before. Now here's proof that he's different. It's so simple. It's just very effective writing. Right. Fred, who is played by like the beta version of Eddie Redmayne. As, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's how I saw him anyway. It's so interesting. Fred is like always the same in every adaptation. And he has to find that note where he's very joyful to like, you know, make us be on his side, but not so joyful that he's just cloying and just annoying. <laughs> you know, like he has to be that sort of like, I'm upbeat, but I'm not so upbeat that you just want me off camera as soon as possible right yeah i like this version of fred Mm -hmm. he has a he has a really nice believable relationship with scrooge where they're not super close but you could like fred is like i'm never gonna stop trying because i might as well right (laughs) kind of amused by scrooge yeah exactly he's not afraid to still make fun of him also totally there's also a lovely bromance between fred and bob that gets explored in different adaptations which is really interesting just like, they'll have like a little scene where they're just like oh they like each other and it's like just it's almost like i want a supercut of just all the little added dialogue between them that different adaptations have done where like he walks into the shop and says hi to bob and stuff yeah it's, and they're just adorable. like yeah it's really nice the, the 1951 <laughs> version i think has a thing and i think like fred gives bob's older son a job in one of the like it's, there's a whole there's a whole thing going on <laughs> i like it yeah Internet get some fanfic stuff going on there. Yeah. <laughs> some slash fanfic. <laughs> yeah. My lesson is just how this movie holds the horror and scariness and the fun and lightheartedness. And I think it's like everything that we've been talking about with Christmas Carol. It's a visible, clear example of how to do a thing well, where, as I was saying earlier, every moment in this film, when they are going dark and making it scary, they don't pull any of those punches they let it land but then as soon as they made their point they switch gears and like make it fun again Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that that's a that's a nice way to do it i think like rather than water down the fun or the scariness just go go hard make your point and then switch gears and make your other point and i think that's that's creating dynamics also i think that's an engaging experience and so that's something that i really appreciated in the storytelling of of a Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Mm. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Alex. So I watched Happiest Season on Hulu starring Mackenzie Davis and Kristen Stewart. It was a really delightful, uh, wonderful holiday movie. I am not usually like a huge rom-com person and I get kind of annoyed when they're just, there's a lot of just like mediocre rom-coms. Like you can see one that's just like going like just, through the list of things you have to do and you kind of just predict the next scene or the next line of dialogue. And this movie, while still being formulaic in some ways, you know, is extremely charming because of the specificity of the characters Mm. and the character actors playing them. And like the whole family in the movie, all the characters have really specific roles and the humor is actually funny. It's not just kind of like cheap rom-com humor. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's like kind of tragic characters in it but it's hilarious. Uh, so I would really recommend it. I, I was I went into it kind of skeptical and like, I don't know. I'm kind of a Scrooge with these movies. I don't know if I'm going to like get into this rom-com. And I was laughing a lot and I had a big smile on my face. So recommended Happiest Season on Hulu. It's awesome. Nice. Nice. Brian, what about you? What have you been watching? So I think three years ago, a friend told me that he was working on a documentary and it finally came out last month and it's called The Orange Years, The Nickelodeon Story. <gasps> 
Yep. Mm. You are you are correct to be excited. And it's about the the sort of founding and that first decade of Nickelodeon. Basically, this woman, Jerry Laybourne, she was the program manager from that time. And she left in 1996, which is sort of right when it kind of had this like big shift in, in what it was. So it's it's about her story and also the story of how the channel came to be, how, why it's orange, like all this kind of stuff. And there's plenty of interviews with a lot of the cast members and creators from the time. And it covers, you can't do that on television, Double Dare, Rugrats, Doug, Ren and Stimpy, Hey Dude, Salute Your Shorts. Nice. Clarissa mm. explains it all. Alex Mack, mm. Are You Afraid of the Dark? All that. Legends Preach. of the Hidden Temple. And it's just, yep, it's, <laughs> it's so good. And I wasn't sure exactly what it was going to be and it was just everything I wanted which was just like this really nice chronology but also getting kind of deep into each show and why it came out the way it did like why it was what the philosophy behind the the, the network was and it actually started to make me emotional because I realized this is why I am the way I am was because they made something that didn't want to talk down to kids and it didn't want to be normal and like saccharine they let the creators just be weird it was kind of this punk rock kids programming you know that like mm -hmm. then then that the one-two punch of nickelodeon when i was a kid and then mtv when i was a teenager is just like this sort of it's okay <laughs> to be crazy and weird and just have fun and do it with love you know so yeah highly 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 recommend the orange years the nickelodeon story uh and if you can pay for it because my friend worked on it that'd be great and then afterwards we watched the fresh prince reunion because of course you watch that next <laughs> yeah which i was like oh it's just gonna be they get back together and they talk and no it, it gets like real emotional it goes to some places i wasn't expecting Aww. it to go and it's it's Ooh. really surprising how just like a cast getting back together can be something uh, you know something greater than just what you're expecting and then also animaniacs on hulu so i mean it's just been a great you know if <laughs> yeah. you're if you're an early 90s animaniacs kid, fantastic awesome trisha what about you what have you been watching our producer vince is always telling us we have to do this part of the show faster um and i'll I'll be as fast as I can. Um, but I have to tell a quick story that uh, Alex has already heard. Uh, but when I was at Sundance last year in January, I was sitting in a cafe, a tiny library like cafe uh, in Park City. And there were maybe 10 people in there. I was just trying to rest. Ethan Hawke walked into this cafe. The cafe was clearly like a community cafe. And there were some employees there that were very clearly disabled. Um, that, you know, obviously worked at the cafe full time. And and Ethan Hawke walked in and, you know, all of us are just goggling at him. Mm -hmm. And the employees at the cafe immediately started screaming at him from across the cafe, White Fang! What? White Fang! White Fang! And they were just, you know, yelling this at Ethan Hawke. And I didn't know how he was going to react, but he walked over to them and he threw his arms around them and said, you guys saw White Fang? Did you like it? And they were like, yeah, it was really great. And he was like, that's my favorite movie I've ever worked on because I got to work with the wolves and oh. they were so incredible. Like everyone in the cafe that was watching this <laughs> just like melted into a tiny puddle of adorableness <laughs> of like everything that was happening around us. And of course, you know, so Ethan Hawke talked to them for a few minutes and, and took some pictures with them. And then he went to leave. And, and one of the other people that was there shouted at him as he was leaving. Hey, Ethan, are you having a good time? And he turned around and like sort of generally to the room goes, are you kidding? Isn't this just the greatest place in the world? <laughs> what a lovely human. It, it, it was an incredible experience. But since that time, I've been meaning to watch White Fang. So <laughs> all that is a way to say I finally did. Yeah, nice. And if you haven't watched White Fang at all or recently, 
It's from 1991. It's directed by Randall Kleiser, who is a fantastic director. Ethan Hawke is, I think, was maybe 20 or 21 when they made that movie, but he looks like he's 15 years old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the wolf in it that they worked with is actually the one from The Thing. Wow. That's a good good actor. Yeah, that's a good get. They also have a bear in it that, like, should have won an Oscar. There's an incredible (laughs) scene with, like, a a brown bear in it. Is it Bart the Bear, the one from Great Outdoors? Yeah, it is the famous, the most famous bear actor there's ever been. If you haven't seen White Fang, it's on your Disney Plus. It's just stunning. They went to Alaska and filmed it in, like, February. The landscapes will just knock you over with how beautiful they are. I like to play this game when I'm watching movies called Real Snow or Fake Snow. And it's just, you just try to guess uh, if your actors are standing in real snow or fake snow. There's no fake snow in White Fang. There's no fake animals. There's no fake snow. There's no fake anything. It's just an incredible adaptation of an amazing book by Jack London. Nice. And it's a really, really great. It's a, it's a family movie, but it's really scary in places. There's, you know, lots of great survivalist kind of stuff in Mm -hmm. it. It's like the Revenant, but more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Not crawling inside of animal carcasses. How is that even possible? Yeah. I can't even fathom how you can make something Anyway, more Baby Ethan Hawke, apparently it's his favorite movie that he ever worked on because he got to work with these wolves. So, thing. yeah, awesome. strong, strong recommend from me. It's a delight. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've been, I'm, I'm up spending time with my mother who loves her British royalty shows. And so I'm finally catching up Yay! on The Crown. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I've now completed the first season of The Crown and it's wonderful. I understand why everyone is very excited about it and enjoys it. Like the cinematography alone is Unreal. just, it's so gorgeous. <laughs> it, and it's not just gorgeous, but there's a lot of like the directing in every episode. There's a lot of visual metaphor happening. Yeah. There's oh, just yeah. a, so many layers of storytelling just being executed at a very, very high quality level. And it's just very enjoyable. The performances are great. It's a fun way to learn more about like what history probably was kind of like a little bit. If you don't know a ton about the royal family, this is like a fun way to be like, probably the main turning points that you're watching happened and the rest is really fun drama. (laughs) Yep. Well, the historical context is real and it's really interesting to learn about eras of history because it spans decades as you keep watching the show. Right. Mm -hmm. And as an American, you know, you know a lot about American history during this period, but not a ton about British history. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It's fun to understand, like, everyone knows Vanessa Kirby from this and not as the girl from Mission Impossible that one time. And Claire (laughs) Foy as, you know, the queen and not not Rooney Mara. So it's fun to see them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. This is how you're supposed to be introduced to them. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they're amazing. Yeah, so I'm very much enjoying it. Excited to continue it. I'm excited to talk to you about it as you get caught up with the current season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yep. We will do this. <laughs> Great. Well, this has been our conversation about a Muppet Christmas Carol. We also have a patron exclusive episode this month on Tenet. So if you want to hear us talk about Tenet, Ooh. you can join us on Patreon. You'll be helping us get closer to Lord of the Rings, which we're all excited about. We will have many, many thoughts and opinions. They're just brimming. We keep teasing each other by talking about it a little bit and then stopping. (laughs) We're trying to hold ourselves back. So uh, as soon as we get to 500 patrons, we will be beginning that journey. Let's do it. Let's do it. For now, Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major. Our editor is Eric Schneider. I've been joined today by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha, Brian, and Alex. Of course, I am Michael. You can find all of our Twitter handles in the show notes. Please feel free to reach out and say hi. We always love hearing from you. Thank you to the patrons for making this show possible. Have a very happy holidays, everybody. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. 